that was how to make the elixir of life and holy grail. Next up. I'm a mortal. Your source for all things immortal. I call myself Dr. Judy Ford to separate myself from all the other Judy Fords who are on the internet. But my doctorate is a PhD in genetics from the University of Sydney a very long time ago. So I didn't start off studying aging. I started off studying plants, actually, and the genetics of plants. But anyhow, as time went on, I did prenatal diagnosis and I did cancer genetics and did a lot of work in the human field. And it became obvious to me as I was studying a lot of work on reproduction. There were significant changes that occurred in both women and men towards their late 30s, early 40s year age group. So I became interested in that because it was having an effect on how chromosomes behaved and how cell division worked. And so gradually I combined that work and also my work in cancer to become interested more in the whole of the aging process. So I haven't always had the opportunity to study that at university. I've taken time out just to teach. <laughs> but now I've retired and I am in fact quite elderly by average standards. I'm writing books about aging and giving talks about healthy aging and trying to encourage people to live healthier lifestyles. I'm really focused on not interventive health, but just on people taking responsibility for their own health and optimizing their lifestyle so that they can minimize the aging process. That's great to hear. Yeah, it's a fantastic introduction. And yeah, I understand. I think some people, when we talk about longevity, there's the people who look to medicine for all the interventions, while others focus on more lifestyle. And we'll talk a bit about both today. Sure. I wanted to ask, because this is I'm immortal, play on the words immortal. We always ask our guests at the beginning, what does the word immortal or immortality mean to you? Well, immortality to me means living forever, not dying. And this idea, I guess, in religion that we've heard for a long time that the soul or some spirit of a person lives forever, even if the body itself dies prior to that. So, Judy, if you were given the chance to, who knows, extend your life another 20, 30 years, 100 years, 200 years, or even potentially become immortal, would you take that chance? Uh, not unless. <laughs> no, well, there's a whole lot of parameters surrounding that. I mean, if you are already retired as I am, so I'm 75, and I'm looking at the cost of living versus what I have in my bank balance and whether I can still continue to earn any money, just how that practical scenario works out. Okay, so that's one aspect. The other aspect is looking at people around me who are currently much older than me. There's a whole lot of things that people might not think about, and that is how many of your contemporaries, so this is looking at, I guess, the current scenario, uh, looking at how many of your contemporaries are still alive, how much of life you might really enjoy. I think another aspect is how much life itself has changed throughout your life. 
at my age, it's fine, you know, because I'm still capable of being involved with computers and computing and a whole lot of things around that that I'm enjoying doing. But at the same time, life itself continues to change, attitudes change, and you gradually become a grumpy old person because <laughs> you inevitably look at your life and your lifestyle and how things were when you were young and you can't help but see that as being bitter. <laughs> that was a really happy time in your life when you were a child and you look now at young children and helicopter parenting and all of this sort of intensive effort into children and of course the world itself has changed there's not as much green space there's not as much freedom and you can't help but think back to when you were a child and you could just safely wander around in the in the local bush and commune with the nature and everything was so much freer and it was lovely and so i think as time goes on there is probably a certain length of time that's comfortable and after that <laughs> it becomes it becomes uncomfortable just from a, an intellectual and emotional point of view as much as a physical point of view. And then of course there's the physical point of view. So if you can still have optimal health, then you can still enjoy life. I'm lucky that at the moment I have nothing wrong with me and I can happily try to, not. I don't play very good golf, but I can at least <laughs> comfortably play 18 holes of golf and push my, my buggy around and enjoy life and do lots of things. So I do lots of exercise, I do lots of little gym work and lots of walking and so, you know, that's fine. But I live in a retirement village. And at the moment, it's quite interesting because we have, we're getting our lift repaired. So a lot of people now have to walk up or down one flight of stairs. And it's quite interesting because a lot of those people always caught the lift. And at the moment, they're having to walk up and down one flight of stairs. And amazingly, already, just within two weeks, many of them are saying they're starting to feel fitter. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think it's easy to become immobile as you get older, especially if you have health problems. And so I think everything should be done to try and keep people as healthy as possible. But I don't believe in expensive interventions to keep people alive. I guess this kind of begs a question. I'm sure you've thought about this throughout your career, which is, why do we age? I know we take it as for granted, like it seems so natural, but mm. now that I think about it, like I know some organisms are negligibly senescent, uh, some are quote unquote biologically immortal, but why do we age at all? Any answer for that? I do, and I've written, written a whole book on it. So my recent book, Why We Age, explains exactly that. But from a simple perspective, most of the cells in our bodies have a a limit, which is usually called the telomere limit. And when cells reach that limit, they become senescent. If they are induced to divide beyond that point, then they're very likely to become cancer cells. So the aging of cells depends on the number of times they divide. 
and most of that cell division is necessary. Some isn't necessary, so we need to do what we can to reduce any excess of cell division. But once cells reach that point of senescence, they become inflammatory, and then that inflammatory state is what produces a lot of the age-related diseases. So we can't stop, well, we can slow down the cell division by not inducing excessive cell division. And that's just by doing things like being healthy, keeping ourselves free from disease, not cutting ourselves, not hurting ourselves in various ways, keeping our gut working as optimally as we can. So all of these things will reduce excessive cell division. But we will still ultimately reach the stage where most of our cells can't divide anymore and become inflammatory. And so then what we need to do is to optimize our systems to reduce that inflammation. And that's by particularly keeping up with trace elements, olive oil and sulfur. Okay, so that's what you have to do. And you have those as dietary factors. And then the rest is keeping everything working, keeping your brain working, keeping your legs working. So you actually, the older you get, the more exercise you have to do. So you have to actually keep exercising all the time. So you have to keep your brain exercising, everything exercising, to stop it from becoming like an old car and sort of getting <laughs> creaky. Keep the whole system oiled. It's really as simple as that. And then depending on when you actually run out of cells and that's when a healthy life actually ends so without adding extra cells by some sort of cell therapy you won't keep people alive indefinitely mm -hmm. so a quick question to kind of add on to that is why is it that certain organisms live longer and certain organisms live much shorter like a tortoise lives hundreds of years, thousands of yeah. years, even, while we live uh, maybe on a good lifespan, 80 years, 90 years. What's the case? Okay, so the average age in Australia at the moment, we have a lot of people who are over 100. I think the average length of age is still around 80, but a lot of that's calculated on the death of infants. So... When you look at the recent Australian statistics of when the highest rate of death is, the highest rate of death in males is at 84 and women is at 85. So why do tortoises live so long? Well, have you ever looked at a tortoise? You know, like it doesn't do a lot. <laughs> a tortoise is very slow. We know it's slow. We know about the hair in the tortoise. Everything a tortoise does is slow. Mm. And so presumably its rate of cell division and rate of cell replacement is also very slow. So it has the same system, but I think because of its way of life, it does everything so slowly that it's going to live a lot longer. But we're not metabolically tortoises, even should we want to, <laughs> which I don't think we do. We can't slow our whole metabolism down to that rate. So it's all related, or mostly, I mean, there are some genetic differences, but it's mostly related to the overall rate of metabolism and growth and replacement. Sorry, I just wanted to jump back a little bit because yeah. there's one question that's sort of been nagging me for a while, and I don't think I found a good answer for it yet. 
I know you and a lot of doctors will vouch for a healthy lifestyle because most people right now will die from an age-related disease, right? It's pretty common. It's no longer infectious diseases. Even with a healthy lifestyle, will that only delay the time I develop an age-related disease or will it also decrease the duration I suffer from an age-related disease if I do have one? It will decrease your risk of getting one. Okay. And you might not get one at all, and you could die just of old age. However, you were interestingly enough, you were talking about immune things, and in older times, people tended to die of infectious diseases. But we will get to the stage where if we live longer, even if we're healthy, we run out of immune cells. So your immune cells, your B lymphocytes, which are your sort of ones that produce your immunoglobulins and react to infections, they apparently, you know, can replace their telomeres and so they are more or less immortal cells. Nevertheless, as we get older, the whole of the structure of the bone marrow and the cell structures that produce these cells breaks down. So even in the most healthy person, as they get very old, their immune system tends to be not as efficient. So even then they might die of an infectious disease very late in their life. That could be the last thing that happens to them. I'm hoping that mine will just be my heart stopping one night when I'm asleep. But it is interesting. It's really just a case, yeah, of running out of running out of cells, running out of replacement cells, and so not being able to just continue indefinitely. There are genes, of course, that influence how long you're going to live. So obviously the people who live longest have got some superior genes to others. Talking to a, a guy a very long time ago who's an expert in a gene called glutathione transferase. So the glutathione gene is a major detoxifier. And he was saying there are simply hundreds of versions of this gene. And he was saying that if you had one particular type, you could smoke all your life and you'd never get lung cancer. Madame Calmon, who's supposedly the longest living person, she smoked until she was 117. So she presumably had this glutathione variant and most people obviously don't have that. I'm not quite sure why she gave up at 117, but I believe she was still walking up the stairs. She lived on the third floor. And the interesting thing about her is that not only did she have a huge intake of olive oil, but she ate a kilogram of dark chocolate every week. <laughs> kilogram of dark chocolate, wow. <laughs> See, there you go. So dark chocolate is actually very good for you, um, but it's got to be low sugar. Of course. But dark chocolate is very good for you. So it's not all a case of having unpleasant things. It's just a matter of knowing what the pleasant things are that you have mm-hmm. to eat. Since we're already talking about genetics and, I guess, food and lifestyle, how much of genetics actually contributes to aging and longevity? We don't know exactly what the proportion is, but 
probably 35% or so percent, a reasonable amount. And obviously, you know, there are individuals who have particularly bad genes who die very young in childhood. And then there are people who have very high-risk genes, high risks for different types of cancers, high risks for different types of disorders are likely to get them in middle age. And then, you know, there are the people who have these superior genes. I don't want to get too technical, but when your cells reach their telomere limit, they have two options. And one is apoptosis, which is self-destruction, and the other is senescence, which is sort of the cells getting into this inflammatory state. So the people who have a gene that gives them a preference for going into apoptosis live longer. Clearly, the genes or the state that causes senescence is the ultimate killer. I mean, if you have the apoptosis, you'll just get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then, you know, eventually you'll run out of cells. I'm quite tall. I'm still five foot ten. Oh, my. <laughs> that's pretty tall. Yeah, I am shrunk at all. I feel that that's a bad sign in terms of longevity. Mm. Finishing Sufal's second part of the question, which was, I know you read a lot about lifestyle, mm. and that is something we can control. Unfortunately, genes, unless we get to yeah. genetic editing. That's right. You can't do it. Right. But a lot of people in terms of diet look towards probably one of the Mediterranean countries or I guess Japan, the Okinawans. Yeah. Is there any overall lesson we can learn from the countries with quote-unquote good diets? Well, yeah. I mean, so the important one in the Mediterranean diet is olive oil. And the important ingredient is oleic acid. But olive oil has a lot of other goodies in it as well. But the Okinawans have a lot of, I think it's sesame oil, that also has a lot of oleic acid. And oleic acid can be taken up by your senescent cells. It calms down, it depletes the inflammation reactions. I wrote some papers about fat metabolism, even though you know I don't really know much about fat metabolism, but I used the data from a place called Scottish Heart Study, and I realized that there were major changes in fat metabolism that occurred with aging. And then by thinking about this, I realized that it was all due to one gene that is activated when cells reach their telomere limit. You should know the name of this gene. It's the P53 gene. And the P53 gene is so important because it switches on when the cells reach their telomere limit. And this stops cells from being cancerous. And all cancers delete the P53 gene or modify it so it doesn't work. So if your P53 gene is working, it will keep the lid on cancer. So it's a sort of strange trade-off because when you switch on the P53 gene, it makes all this inflammation occur. But if you switch it off, the cells go rampant and keep dividing and become a cancer. So that's why you have to, rather than stop the inflammation, you have to allow the P53 to be turned on, but then you have to learn how to damp down the effects of the inflammation. 
the body will eventually remove these senescent cells. I mean, because you do produce some of them throughout your life. But as you get older, you produce more and more and more of them, and the body is unable to get rid of them. And there is one laboratory or company somewhere that's trying to remove senescent cells. seems to me that that would be an incredibly, unless they can find a very simple way of doing it with something that you actually eat or take, it's not going to be something you can offer people to allow them to live healthier lives. But it's obviously a way of making older people healthier is by removing their senescent cells. That's the ultimate. So you either have to calm down the effects of this senescent cells and the inflammation it causes, or you have to, as this one company is doing, remove the senescent cells. So I think that's, a, at the moment, a treatment for the very, very rich. I know you did some work in reproduction maternal aging as well as fertility yeah and i guess i'll start off with this to give some people a background but what really happens for a woman between the ages of 20 and 50 in terms of their aging because i know there's some point they reach menopause yeah so i was wondering what the difference was before and after menopause in terms of aging and health before and after menopause in terms of aging and health okay well I think the aging itself is gradual and the aging that occurs within the reproductive system is really highly linked to the aging that's going throughout the whole body. There does seem to be perhaps a particular effect that involves a part of the adrenal gland, this sort of very particular knowledge. And I've never heard of this thing called the adrenal reticularis. But anyhow, this is to do with the production of something called DHEA. And so it does appear that by taking DHEA, you can improve reproductive performance in women. So although there's aging going on throughout the whole period, the events that occur in the late 30s age group that particularly produce lots of miscarriages and increased infertility, that does seem to involve the adrenal gland. And so maybe supplementation with DHEA will help that. And I know women who've gone out and got a prescription for it and taken it and suddenly they've been fine. So there are some sort of mixed feelings about this, but I think for a lot of people who are otherwise okay, that this may be just a function that relates just to the adrenal gland. But throughout the whole body, we have this continuous thing that is happening throughout life where gradually cells are becoming senescent. So a lot of that aging is is related to that. Menopause itself is basically running out of eggs. There's a limited supply that a woman has from birth, and these are gradually recruited throughout life until she gets to the stage where she runs out. But it is a complex relationship between the ovary and the adrenal gland that then creates this sort of menopause Interestingly enough, I think that once a woman gets through menopause, 
the variations in hormones that occur over that time can be pretty unpleasant. And a lot of women now take estrogens or something to them through that process. But I think once you're through it, life is pretty good. It's rather nice not having to have menstrual cycles and things. And I think women suddenly start feeling freer. So we often find that once women, most women have gone through menopause by the time they're in their mid-50s. So it's the time from the mid-40s to the mid-50s that, you know, there can be a lot of mood swings and difficulty. But then there are a few good years to come where suddenly you don't feel hampered by your body anymore. And you don't feel sort of that you have to worry about that. Presumably these changes in the adrenal gland are also happening in men. So men also become gradually infertile. So a lot of men around 40 have really got quite reduced fertility. And especially if they've done any any work like laboring jobs or other jobs that have exposed them to a lot of chemicals. Chemicals seem to be particularly sort of a problem. They will find that they also have reduced fertility. So it was quite funny because until relatively recently, so, you know, when I started doing fertility work, which was in the early 1970s, men just weren't infertile. Like it was always the woman's fault. And then when they first started doing DNA studies, particularly in one town in the UK, and they, everyone immediately said, oh, this can't be right, this must be wrong, but whatever. It seems that women had been solving fertility problems by going on cruises. The Tinker, the Tailor, you know, those Irish songs probably had some realistic sort of meaning. And often a man's brother would step in if his brother might have been infertile. So male fertility was covered up. And so in this town in England, they found about 30% non-paternity. Could this be right? Oh, no, shock, horror, couldn't possibly be right. But anyway, in the end, I think we've all agreed that it was right and that fertility problems were solved in this quiet way, all women were just put aside and thought of infertile. It wasn't until, you know, really, oh, quite a long time after that suddenly people started admitting that there was a real problem of male infertility. So it's been studied much more widely since then. The male picture is not, in terms of age group, is not that different to women. I had no clue that was the case. I was told by others that men stay fertile for much longer. I guess I learn something new every day. Well, you know, and they might. They might. They don't have the same restriction of the ovulation process as women, so they don't, they don't have such a sharp cutoff point. I think there are men who still have active sperm in their 70s and 80s. But just how many, we don't know, because women have been lying for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Since we're speaking about fertility, obviously there's some people who use things to reduce their fertility, such as birth control. Since I'm a little bit inexperienced in the topic, obviously, how exactly does birth control work? Because as far as we know, when you take birth control, you stop ovulating, so eggs cannot go down, you can't get pregnant. 
So when you get off of birth control, do you still have the same amount of eggs available for fertilization or are you losing eggs in some other way? That's a very good question. I've forgotten some of this stuff, I have to admit. I haven't yeah. thought about it for a long time. <clears throat> but you certainly don't save up all your eggs. By having birth control, you don't then have a huge supply <laughs> of eggs. There still is deterioration. I have the feeling that in the early days when we had stronger, higher levels of hormones in the birth control pills and they probably suppressed ovulation completely, that there may have been some saving up effect, some banking effect, because I did do some analysis of women who had been on the pill, and this was done a long time ago, so this was done in the sort of 1980s or something when the women who had been on the pill had been taking stronger pills, and those women did seem to have lower rates of miscarriage when they were older. But that, I think, has changed because the pills have changed. And so the pills now, in order to try and overcome some other possible effects from the pill, from the hormones, they reduce the levels to a level where it would just control things. And I don't think that had the same effect on preserving the eggs. But somebody could catch me out on that because I might not be quite up to date with that data. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have sort of a more hypothetical one. So I guess this can't really be right or wrong. <laughs> okay. But pretty much proponents of life extension, like the sorts of therapies that, for example, the one you mentioned, maybe getting rid of senescent cells, right? Yeah. These therapies, I'm presuming the goal is to have a longer health span. Like obviously, I don't want to feel like I'm 90 for another 50 years. I'd like to feel like I'm 50 for another 90 years, probably. Yeah, yeah. But one thing related to maternal health, and I haven't seen this discussed, is for that prolonged health span, for a woman at least, does it matter if that period consists of her still ovulating and being fertile versus postmenopause? Does it matter how long that period is if we were to think about some sort of life extension therapy? What a good question. Uh, I don't know the answer to that question. I would have thought that it would be better to do it maybe after she'd stopped going through the reproductive cycles. I would have just thought that maybe that had more of a demand on the body. Just thinking from the lining of the uterus, for instance, in a fertile woman, every month you build up a new lining and every month every month it's sloughed off and there's that bleeding. So just that alone must use up a lot of cells, whereas I think once that process stops, that must save a lot of energy and cell divisions, just that one thing certainly reduces the need for iron in the diet, for instance. So just thinking of it from a nutritional point of view, but also from a cell turnover point of view, we want to reduce cell division as much as we can because every time a cell divides, that's when it has a chance of making a mistake and in theory mm. becoming a cancer cell. So anything that reduces cell division, I think, is ultimately better for us. It's a little bit like having a house and 
keeping up the repairs, that if you don't do the proper servicing of your house, then it's going to fall down. But all the same, if you keep knocking it down and rebuilding it, you know, that's going to take a lot more cost and a lot more energies. So it's really sort of maintenance that we're on about. So I would have thought that if you wanted to prolong life, at least in women, it might be the same rules in men, that in women you'd probably do it postmenopausally, but in men you might you might do it earlier because they don't have that same sort of system. So I think that might lead us to different type of thinking. If you don't mind me asking, I'm going to ask a little bit more of a dicey question or something that might have a little bit more of a taboo to it, to say the least. In your idea, it might be easier to induce life extension or immortality in women after they have gone through menopause. Do you think it would also be beneficial in terms of controlling the population of the world? Because a big problem that people often bring up with the idea of living longer and immortality is overpopulation. Well, we've got a huge problem with overpopulation and the balance of the different ages, as you know. I mean, you've obviously thought about this a lot. We don't want to have too many children. And I think one of the problems that we have in the world at the moment is that we have this focus on saving people from death. We have saving people from death everywhere. We save them from death. And we, by doing this, in a way, we encourage people to live in places where they shouldn't be living in the first place, where there's the high risk of droughts or volcanoes or whatever else. And people, in response to this, tend to reproduce more because traditionally those children haven't had much of a chance of surviving. And so you produce more children knowing that some of them are going to die. But then we have all these other people coming from outside the area, saving all these people from death. And so then we create an overpopulation. However, when China tried to, well, (laughs) they had a couple of problems actually in China, trying to reduce the birth rate, they ended up with too many boys and they also sort of realised that they created a whole lot of societal problems. But keeping these things in balance is really tricky. So if you keep everyone alive longer, you really have a population problem. It really is better for people to die earlier. We all should be dying anyway. I don't know, it's it's a philosophical problem and I don't really think that people have thought this out properly. And our current society's capitalism, capitalism depends on growth. And that's crazy. You know, we can't we can't continue to grow in all ways because we run out of space and we create really unpleasant living conditions for everybody. So the whole thinking is wrong at all sorts of levels. And it comes from religion, it comes from economics, it comes from all sorts of things, things I don't know nearly enough about. But like you, you know, I can see that there's there's a huge problem and how we fix it, I don't know. Oh, I mean, because I understand the argument from people who are into life extension longevity health span of people is important but like you just mentioned there's a lot of other things you could be solving but to give the argument from life extension their argument is because so many people suffer from an age-related disease 
people are thinking, well, why not put every resource towards this? To get to the question, you pretty much talked about China's one-child policy. And I mean, there's a few dystopian thoughts I was just having, which is, would it be ideal, first of all, in a scenario where everyone could live to age 80, right? Mm-hmm. And perfect health. And then at age 80, they just, they just drop dead. <laughs> is that, would that be? We take a, no, we take a pill. Yeah. We take a pill, right? So we take a pill. We have, so I like these. I love euthanasia. I think it's fantastic. I mean, that's what I would like. If I felt that either I'm unwell or I'm unable to look after myself or I've simply had enough, right. I'd just like to take a pill. And so I think that, you know, there are some countries in the world where you can do that. And we have some very weak euthanasia laws coming into Australia now, but you've got to be really, really sick. You've got to suffer a lot before you're allowed to die. I don't want to suffer. I'd like to just sort of be able to say it's time to go and feel that that was okay. So anyway, that's one thing. That was a bit off the question, wasn't it? Um, what was the question? <laughs> well, I mean, I didn't even, I don't even got the question. Well, based off that, let's say people lived 200 years. So somehow we were able to get to that point. Yeah. Right? Okay. Suppose they did. Right. Yeah. And my worry now, I don't know if this is rational, but based on China's circumstance before, if overpopulation really becomes an issue, then do you think we could have some sort of global one child policy or even maybe one child per century or per, I don't know, every 50 year policy? Do you think that could possibly happen if we live just so much longer? It's interesting in places like Italy, many places in Europe where the population is sort of fairly old by average standards, they actually have a very low reproduction rate. They are suffering from a problem of not having enough young people. So if you extend age, you also have to extend the productivity of those people. You can't continue to just grow and grow and grow and grow and grow your population. And you certainly can't just continue to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow a group of the population who is dependent on the rest of the population. So from a purely economic circumstance, people of my age need to be contributing. Now, a lot of people are contributing. A lot of people are contributing. They're not being paid for it, but they are doing a lot of voluntary work and they're putting back into the community. And that's fine. That's really good. But financially, we still, most of us, are taking out money in terms of pensions and things. So we've put in that money in the past, and it's only right that we should be able to take it out as we get older. However, the arithmetic is starting to not work. And everyone knows that if you continue to have people getting older, you at least increase the age at which people can retire. In order to do that, you have to keep these people healthier. And you can't continue to put as much money, as, at least in Western countries, you can't continue to put as much money back into healthcare as we are at the moment. I'm a great fan of orthopedic surgery, all right? So 
if you can pick people's knees and hips up and stuff so that they can be more independent, then that's fine. You know, you only have to do those operations maybe once in their lifetime or twice or something. But they are very productive sort of operations in terms of they save a lot of other costs. They make this person independent, then this person doesn't have needs that make them dependent on a whole lot of other resources. But then there are other operations that people are doing that are just saving them from death and are just prolonging their life. And I'm sorry, but I'm again those for myself as well. And I haven't actually had to face saying I won't have that operation. But certainly for certain cancers and things, some cancers, they can do an operation that then makes that person pretty independent and okay. But I think, and I suppose somebody would argue, well, people get better at these operations. So, yeah, the early ones they're not so good at, but later, you know, it does have this effect. But I don't know. I think there are a lot of questions that need to be asked. And if I can just tell you a story. I haven't told you where I used to work, and so I won't say who this person is, but I was working at a hospital, and the director of cardiology wanted to have a heart transplant. And he gave a presentation, and it became obvious in the presentation that aspirin was a very, very good way of of preventing lots of cardiac problems in susceptible people. So I went up to him after the talk and I said, why do you want a cardiac transplant unit when it's obvious that in most cases just treating people with aspirin would be more effective and cost virtually nothing? And he said, aspirin is so boring. (laughs) See, that is a case of... You've got all these people with fantastic qualifications, all this training and all these wonderful skills. Now, it's great for cardiac surgeons who work with children, you know, and they, the child is born and maybe by doing operation or even fetal surgery or very early life surgery, if they're able to do something that gives this person then a normal life or almost normal, it may be. But should somebody who's not looked after their life and caused themselves a lot of damage be given a liver transplant? Is that reasonable? I mean, say I think there are a whole lot of questions, very difficult ones to answer. All sorts of ethicists need to discuss these sorts of things. I think that for the world to proceed, a bit of going back to Darwinian natural selection. Oh, no, that's so dangerous to say. I mean, on the idea of ethics, though, we did actually have a bioethicist on. And one of the things he's alluding to, which you also just talked about, which was, let's say we have some sort of pill, which can really improve your health span. And by default, would probably extend your life as well. The question we posed to him was, should people who reject that pill still receive the same quality health care, knowing that they will, down the line, 
make themselves a greater burden to society. So it's great that you're thinking about that because we totally were like, oh man, this could be a thing mm -hmm. really. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think just from not such a difficult question as that, but should there be some sort of evaluation of how responsibly you live your life in terms of the treatment you're offered? And I would say yes. I would say that if you have three people lined up in the room and only one of them can have the treatment, that the person who's smoked all their life or the person who's drunk themselves silly or the person who has totally neglected their diet, if there were limited resources, I think that the people who have made a real effort should be given a priority. But it's the same sort of question. Yeah, well, I mean, you also want them to be responsible with maybe the new organ they're getting, right? If you give the smoker needs new lungs. Yeah. And you're like, will you really yeah. take care of your lungs? <laughs> yeah, you're going to smoke the same way. Yeah, yeah. Look, they were so funny, you know, because going back to this same hospital where I used to work, these were in the days when people, well, smoke, anti-smoking wasn't as high as it is now. But there were people, they weren't able to smoke inside the hospital. And so we reached this point where at least we'd reached that point. So these people are sitting outside the hospital in an area where they can get a bit of sunshine. They're all in their wheelchairs. They're all amputees. They've all had, you know, legs cut off, mostly legs, because of smoking. So we don't often hear about this, but because smoking has such a bad effect on the vascular system, people often get their legs chopped off in amputees because of smoking. These people were sitting in wheelchairs with their amputized legs and they had oxygen cylinders attached to them because they couldn't breathe without an oxygen cylinder. And they were still smoking. I mean, we were all worried that they'd blow us up. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there is this stuff going on and it's unreasonable. It is unreasonable that people who don't take some responsibility mm -hmm. can go on in this way. But I mean, I know some people get really addicted to smoking and my next door neighbor who died of lung cancer had her last cigarette about five minutes before she died. Wow. That was impressive. She was dedicated to her smoking. It's a hobby at that point. <laughs> so I'm gonna jump back to an idea you mentioned a little bit earlier. You mentioned Darwin. Hopefully everyone knows Darwin coined and did a lot of work on evolution. And one of the thoughts we had was, well, if people are living longer lives, and in theory, let's say their health span is extended to the point where they can have babies or children later in life, do you think there might be any ramifications associated with generations turning slower and evolution potentially occurring at a slower rate because we're having children instead of at 30 years old, you have a child, you're having a child at like 120. <laughs> if it was possible. If it was possible, of course. See, I, I don't think that's possible. I don't think it's possible because of the cell turnover thing. I mean, as, you, as you're pointing out, evolution has occurred in such a way as there are gradual changes that if those changes have a selective advantage, they are selected on. I think we've interfered so much with evolution now that I'm not sure that 
natural evolution ever ever occurs anymore. But nevertheless, we probably have some other types of evolution that are occurring. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I guess, let's say, compare a human with a mouse. We're not on the direct line from a mouse, but we did at some stage have a common ancestor. From that perspective, yes, there has been a species we regard ourselves as high, or maybe we're not. I think the ultimate species is the cockroach. But anyway, if you regard ourselves as being superior, as we tend to, then okay, we have achieved that, that elongation of life and that extension of reproduction. Mind you, the balance of that is that we only usually produce one offspring, occasionally a few more. But that sort of is the biological trade-off that has occurred in evolution. Whereas mice, anything that lives short life produces a proportionally many more offspring. That's the sort of obvious balance of life. So in theory, yes, we could produce sort of gradually an increased lifespan. But I would think that along with that, we would decrease our reproduction. So the individuals who were going to live a very long time, I think they would have very low fertility hmm. because that's the balance. It is through the whole of the animal and plant kingdom, and that seems to be the way things must be. I mean, your thought's pretty clear that in terms of will we ever live till 200 Judy Ford says, Dr. Judy Ford says, I think not really. But I know there are some people, like example, Ray Kurzweil, I don't know the exact year, but somewhere between 2040 and like 2050, I want to say, where he believes man and machine will be united in some sort of way. There'll be some sort of singularity. I was just wondering, though, what are your predictions for the future of humanity? You could be very specific as to aging or maybe as broad as to any sort of technological innovation. What do you think is going to happen by, let's say, 2050 in terms of human health? <laughs> oh, it's so hard. It's so hard to predict, you know, because when the DNA code was eventually cracked and I was asked then to make predictions of what would happen in 2000, and I actually have a newspaper article that was written of what we would think then. Actually, my predictions then those things are sort of starting to happen now, some of them. So it's taken sort of a lot longer, is what I'm saying, for things to happen for what we predict. Uh, were they correct? Uh, yeah, I guess most of them were, but they were pretty easy sorts of things to predict. My predictions at that time about ageing and healthy ageing I don't think I really saw anything. I don't think aging has changed except for the fact that people have more limbs. The orthopedic surgeons have allowed us to be more mobile. And so I think that that, that, has, that has improved. But I don't know if you realise that probably everyone realises the rate of cancers are increasing throughout the world rapidly. But what is increasing even more rapidly is the rate of autoimmune diseases. And autoimmune diseases are really starting to cause massive problems. So I actually see 
things going downhill rather than very much uphill. But I'm a pessimist sometimes. <laughs> I don't know if I've really answered the question, actually. Um, no, I, I It's think, a hard one. I think you have. I mean, once again, it's hard to predict because I think you mentioned, yeah, the rate of disease. And I'm trying to balance that out in my head of rate of technological innovation. It's hard to kind of gauge that, right? Yeah. It's very hard to gauge because technological innovation is fantastic and it's really going ahead. I think its implementation is very much influenced by politics. We've got politics, we've got wars, we've got technology, we've got biology. <laughs> I don't think that the biology itself is improving at all. I think it's going backwards. But whether, whether with some of the changes in technology, we will reduce some of the chemicals and other radiation, radiation that's actually causing some of the new problems. It's really hard. It's really hard to sort of try and think about this in any sort of practical way. So I'm sorry, I can't. <laughs> it's all right. It's hard to predict the future anyways. <laughs> Yes. How to predict today's future rather than exactly? Tomorrow. What am I going to eat for lunch? I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So since uh, I'm sure a lot of the audience, I'm sure there's a few people out there who might be interested in getting involved with human biology and genetics, or potentially even human reproduction. Where do you think they should start? You mean getting involved with it, as in for themselves as careers, or just for interest? careers, maybe even just as an interest? Well, there's so much information on the internet and stuff. What I'm, you know, apart from reading all my books and following me, you know, of course they should do. And I'm starting to develop courses, online courses, because I think that, you know, I can probably teach people and answer more of their questions and do some useful things there. But really, I think some of the things that are really good are the citizen science type projects. So unless you're actually going to go to university and study things, but a way of getting involved, um, I think, is citizen science projects. I don't know how much, how many of these you have in Canada. You probably have lots of them. You might not know much about them. But some of these are worldwide and most of them are local. But they're just fascinating things that people can do. Like one of the ones, one of the many ones that's around here at the moment is on what the frog population is doing, right? So what the frog population is doing, um, because frogs are one of the most vulnerable species. And so we can evaluate a lot about the health of our environment from the health of the frogs. And so what they're getting people to do is to record the sounds of frogs. So any frogs that you hear, I mean, I haven't actually done this yet myself, but you go out there with your phone or whatever and you record the sounds of the frogs that you're hearing and then you submit them to a website where there's this particular citizen science project going on. And there are all sorts of things being done under the name of citizen science. They do things like working out how far cats roam at night and all sorts of things that are actually strong influences on the natural environment. And the natural environment, possibly unrecognized by a lot of technocrats, is probably the thing that's going to 
influence our ability to live on the planet for as long as we can. Although sometimes some of these things might seem a bit over the top, I think they are really important. Yeah, so getting involved in that is good. That's something that everyone can do from their home and get involved with groups of like-minded people. But otherwise, lots and lots and lots of information available everywhere, even if you don't ever go and be a formal student. Okay. And I guess as we wrap up, I'll ask the second last one, which is out of our entire interview today from the last hour, is there one specific takeaway you really want people to have in terms of the entire field of longevity? What should people really know? Well, I think they should know that under at least under normal circumstances, they will die, but they can influence their latter health and probably therefore how long they'll live a healthy life by paying enormous attention to their diet and lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And specifically to whole body exercise, that means mind and body. So really being conscious of that all the time, but also diet. Diet is incredibly important. And the most important thing is as you get older to add to your diet, let's say olive oil, some of the other oils that have oleic acid in them are fine. So oleic acid, olive oil, you know, as you get to about 60 or so, you need at least a tablespoon a day of raw olive oil, sorry, raw olive oil. But you also need to make sure you have enough of trace elements. One of the most important is selenium. Trace elements are trace, so you mustn't have too much of them. But probably three Brazil nuts a day is good. Yeah, so that's really it. So it's really a matter of having a balance of life. Oh, the other thing that's incredibly important, of course, is sleep and sleeping in the dark and not allowing yourself to get angry and anxious. So keeping that balance of mind and body and soul. Perfect. So where can people learn more about your work, Judy, support it, or even get involved with you? Okay, so I think probably the easiest spot is my website, now, my website actually has two names, so it can be either drjudyford.com or it can be the-lifestyle-doctor.com. So either of those will lead you to the same place, and then I will, I must go and update everything to make sure it has all the links that it needs. I have recently written a book, as I said, called Why We Age, which I'm talking about, and that book is also available on Amazon. I'm putting forward to some courses. Well, one's for professionals, but one is also for everyday people, which I hope people will come and do and enjoy. We can talk much more over time with this. So for all of you guys listening, any links or potentially the course in the future Judy will be running will be in the description below. And once again, thank you, Judy, for coming on to I'm Immortal, your source for all things immortal. We really appreciate you taking the time and coming to speak with us today. Thank you. And now you guys can go to bed. (laughs) Yes, we will. We will. Thank you, Judy.